Welcome to the Student Podcast. Our goal is to act as a conduit for young people to help them simplify complicated topics, concepts, and success stories into actionable pieces of intelligence they can use in their everyday lives. Today, I'm very excited. Our guest is Dr. Chandler. Her research is focused on understanding how bacteria communicate and cooperate with, with each other to carry out complex behaviors. Scratching your head, it's okay. We're going to dive in here. She's primarily studies cell to cell communication, communication systems in bacteria called quorum sensing. If I got that wrong, she can correct me. Um, but thank you so no, much. No, that's right. You got it. Welcome. Uh, welcome. We're excited. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is, this is exciting for me too. Yeah. So as usual, we kind of dive into a little bit about your journey thus far. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit. Uh, where you came from, what you've done, coming up into into your current role, just some of the spark notes of your journey thus far, um, kind of how you got to where you are. Okay, so should I just begin with where I came from? I came from Iowa. Okay. I'm a Midwesterner. Yeah, <laughs> I grew up in Iowa City, and um, I went to the University of Iowa, and I always liked science, although I originally liked chemistry. So. When I was in high school, I took a really great chemistry class. I would say that was probably my first um, my first aha moment in that class where I said, this is cool. I really like this. I think what really appealed to me was the analytical side of it. And then I got into the university and took my first real chemistry class, and it was a bit too much. So <laughs> I shifted over to biology, um, which I um, totally loved and followed from there and I just I I I went from biology to microbiology to the sociology of microbes and then ended up here. <laughs> yeah. And I actually I'm one of very few people who exactly followed my major and my minor. So I majored in microbiology and I minored in sociology. And now I study the sociology of microbes. Yeah. You'll never see this again. This is the first <laughs> I'm probably one of the only examples of someone who followed exactly what I majored and minored in. Yeah, no. <laughs> I want to understand a little bit about like what you mean by that too. Like diving into like I, like I mentioned in the in the intro here. I don't know that I, the average bear knows cell cell communication, quorum sensing, all that kind of stuff. To me, it always blew my mind that cells and things inside of us, it's dark in there. How the hell do they know what's going on and talk and get around? Like all of that stuff was always so intriguing. So I'm very excited to hear a little bit more um, about some of that. Yeah, so um, cells communicate with each other. And um, I, my specialty is, is bacterial cells. So I can tell you all kinds of ways that they communicate with each other. But what I study is um, quorum sensing, which is uh, exactly what it sounds like when bacteria get to a certain number or quorum, then they change their behavior. And they track that using small chemical signals. So they have these little chemical signals that they secrete into the environment. And then when the signals get up to a certain concentration, they can detect that and they shift their whole behavior into something new. And it makes sense that you would want to do that because when you get up to a certain population, then there are other, there are different types of behaviors that you'd want to use than when you're a single cell navigating around on your own. So they shift into more population relevant behaviors when they get up to the higher population numbers. And that's what I study. So that's called quorum sensing. Um, and it is as a type of sociology, it's a type of social interaction, which falls under the category of sociology. 
um, which is why I say I study the sociology of bacteria. It's a type of communication. And um, so they're communicating with each other to keep track of how many there are. And, um, and then they also use this type of communication to cooperate. So they're, they're cooperating as a group to do these behaviors. So when I say social, the sociology of, of bacteria or so, so social interactions between bacteria, I'm talking about communication, cooperation. I like that. So, so yeah, that's that's what I do. I love that. Um, and I, the, the other piece too is that, I mean, very niche field. <laughs> like you mentioned, not many people follow exactly what they're doing, um, or the major and minor, I mean. And so I guess the question I would have, like diving into some of the, uh, our framework here, the call to adventure, like there are tons of things it sounds like you could kind of do with some of those majors. How did you get specifically honed into some of the core, like the niche that you fell in? What was kind of that initial call to adventure that I, I want to be a researcher, I want to pursue a PhD, I want to go to, how did, how did some of those things click into place at the end of school or college? I mean, it was kind of a process of elimination, actually. <laughs> I wasn't very good at most other things I did, and this was the one thing that I was good at. So I tried, at, at first, you know, with a biology degree, you can do so many things. And I, that, I think that was part of the appeal to me, actually. I like the idea of having a lot of different options because I'm kind of indecisive by nature. And um, so when I was an undergrad, I was thinking, well, I'll major in microbiology, and then I can figure it out after that. And so I, I got the major going and then my junior and senior year, I was exploring all the different options and um, like medical school or vet school. I was really interested in vet school. Um, I was thinking about some other options, like maybe becoming an eye doctor or a dentist. I talked to everyone around me, like, what is it like to be an eye doctor? <laughs> and um, and I just, I slowly ruled out each of those things. And at the very beginning of undergrad, I started working in a lab just to make money. I needed, I wanted to make money and I thought it sounded fun. And it is, it's actually a really great way to make money because it's very flexible and it's right on campus. And there's a bunch of fun people in the lab. And so I started working in this lab and um, I found that I really enjoyed it. And every other thing I went and did I didn't enjoy as much. And so then I'd come back. There were actually a few jobs that I got where I, I quit because I wasn't enjoying it that much. And then I would come back to the lab. <laughs> and so by the time I was done with undergrad, I was starting to realize that that's probably what I should do. <laughs> since That's the one thing that I was, you know, kept coming back to and really enjoyed. So, um, but, enjoy it. like awesome people in there, but was it like, do you like the monotonous work? Was it monotonous work? Is it the results? Is it the discoveries? Like what, what is it you loved about it? What did I love about the lab? Yeah. I loved, um, I think I loved the process of discovery. I liked, um, although as an undergrad, I was mostly just doing dishes. So I, I think I liked seeing people make discoveries around me. And I liked how they would, they would discuss their discoveries and what they meant. And that was really fun to listen in on those conversations. And they would, they would be very, um, lab workers are not, uh, isolated introverts, like people think of them. They're, they're very social actually. And I think science in general is a very social, getting back to my, you know, sociology minor, science in general is a very social career. You have to have input from other people in order to do good science. And in this lab that I was in, there were constant interactions happening and really fun conversations. They would go out to lunch every day and talk about their results and I would join them. And even though I was mostly just doing dishes, I think I really enjoyed being part of that. And they had this particular lab had a lot of 
maybe even more, more of those kinds of interactions than most labs. They had late night lab meeting where they would drink beer and have a lot of fun. <laughs> Not at all. Right. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, I, I learned later that that was a little unusual, <laughs> but, but I enjoyed it. It was something that I really enjoyed. And there were a bunch of other undergrads doing dishes with me that I also had fun with. So it was, and it was something that I was pretty good at too. So they would give me something to do. Like, um, I, I worked in a fly lab. I actually worked in a neuroscience fly lab. So we were studying neuroscience and flies. And so I, I had these, um, jobs, like I was supposed to keep the fly stocks, um, fresh. And so I would, I would get media and then transfer flies and I, and other people would come in and they'd get squeamish from the flies or they would, you know, forget to transfer a stock and then it would go bad and they'd get yelled at. And, and it was all like, totally not a problem for me. I didn't get squeamish at all. And even, even when every once in a while, a cockroach would crawl out, <laughs> yeah. it never bothered me. I wasn't bothered by any of it. <laughs> and so I, I think that was part of it too, that I, I, I was naturally pretty good at it. I, I didn't, they, we got a little bit more complicated and more complicated as I went. So then I started doing genetic crosses and I would help with some of the experiments, looking at the um, movements that the fly would make. And basically what they were doing is making mutations in different um, neural receptors and then seeing how that would affect the fly's movement. And so I would help them make the mutations and then I would help them observe the mutants or the movements. And so it, it was, and I would, both of those things were super fun for me too. I really enjoyed like learning how to work the equipment so that we could videotape the flies moving around. And, and then we would analyze that and see which mutants had different movement effects. So, um, so yeah, I, I guess I, I enjoyed every aspect of it. Yeah, from social interactions among the people to the actual work and the discoveries that we made, all of it was really fun. Yeah, I love that. And I love uh, you're really kind of letting us peer into the base level. Like, yes, there are the grind, like Elon got to Mars type science stuff, but then the base level, like the work that needs to be done to get to giant things like that, like the bricks that we have to stack on one another to get to things, stuff like this so i love it yeah you put it you put it very perfectly and that's something that i didn't really under, understand as an undergrad was where it all would lead to eventually and as you get further and further along you have a better appreciation of how stacking those bricks is just as important as some of the other things you you would never get to mars if you didn't know how to build the spaceship and you would never know how to build the spaceship if you didn't know how to make all those electrical connections and power it you know and all the basic things so that's what we were doing. We were just doing this very basic work that was very important. Eventually I figured that out, but <laughs> it was very important though. So one thing you did mention was some of the interactions that you got to have with some of the people who were making the discoveries. Um, did any of those become a mentor for you? Were any of them somebody you looked up to? Did you have any of these people that helped you kind of as an undergrad or maybe even in graduate school, different things like that, that you looked up to or a researcher that is in the public sphere even that you're like, they do amazing work. I've read their papers. I follow every single thing whenever I'm always watching science and like that kind of thing. Did you have any type of mentors like that? Yeah, I did. I think um, the first mentor that I had was the person that I worked with who was just a tech in the lab and her name actually was the same as mine, which I think might be why they hired me. I always joke that that was why they hired me when <laughs> her name was Josie. And, um, and she was just really great. Like she showed me how to do everything and she didn't make me feel bad when I didn't understand things. And she got me excited about the day-to-day -day tasks and also 
relayed to me how important it was to do, you know, like you have to do these dishes so that they can do their research. And even though it's boring, it's still really important. And that, that kind of stuff was really nice. Um, and then eventually I started to get to know the, the head of the lab, which is what we call the principal inve investigator. We call that the PI. He was the one that ran the lab and then brought in the money to get the, you know, to do all the research that we were doing. And, um, and he was just this really happy guy who was really interested in the welfare of everybody in the lab. And he loved it that we were all so social and he would encourage it. And he, I would say he became a mentor um, because I, I wanted to, I loved how happy he was. He was happy in his job and he was always telling us how happy he was. And I really, I thought that that was really great. And, and it's funny, I visited him more recently, like two or three years ago. And he was still really happy. <laughs> and he was, he was telling me how, you know, even though funding was really bad for a while, I did fine and I'm so grateful. And it was, you know, he just had this really positive spin on everything that, that had happened. And, and he also, I could tell he was really proud of where everybody had gone in the lab. He was telling me about my cohort, all the people who were there when I was there and where everybody had gone and all the things that they were doing. And I think, I think that also made him happy to see all of us be happy. So he was definitely a mentor early on. I saw what he did. I didn't know exactly what he did, but I saw kind of what he did. And I really liked that. I liked what he was doing. So have you been able to, um, I mean, I, like, well, it sounds like you're a neuroscientist, right? Observe and reflect, man. Have you been able to reflect any of, of the mentorship and, and the way that he ran lab and things like that in your own now? Like how has mentorship shifted for you? Do you like, do you mentor now more or what does that look yeah, like? Yeah, I actually, I, you know, I did have a little shift when I went back and visited him a few years ago, I had been running my own lab for a couple of years and um, I was invited back to the University of Iowa is where this was. I was invited back to the University of Iowa to give a talk and um, I stopped in to visit with him. And, and yeah, it's so funny when you go back after 20 years and then you see everything's exactly the same and you're like, oh my gosh, this is the same. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I remembered, it just all came flooding back to me how much fun the lab was and all the people, all the other undergraduates that I had fun with and all the grad students that I had fun with. And when I came back to my own lab, I started to increase the social activities that we were doing. And I hired a few more undergrads because I wanted to, I was reminded of how much fun that environment was and, and what I could do to try to facilitate that. So I did, it shifted me, but not until much later when I was kind of reminded of it. Um, I did have two other mentors oh, yeah. who were my, my direct mentor, my PhD advisor, and then my postdoc advisor. And following the rest of my journey, when I went, I graduated from the University of Iowa, and then I went to the University of Minnesota for my PhD, and then I got a PhD in microbiology, and then from, from there, yeah, and then from there, I went to the University of Washington in Seattle and did a postdoc, and which is kind of a common progression for people who are where I'm at, at, at um, the professor level. Can you define postdoc just for some people who might not? Oh, sure, yeah. So a postdoc is, it's, it's sort of like, so it's called a... Um, postdoctoral fellowship, it's sort of like an internship, but it's much longer than that, or an apprenticeship. You could think of it as an apprenticeship. Wow. So after you get your PhD, you've specialized in one thing and one area, and you've done a pretty tremendous amount of work in that area, but you're not really ready to go do a faculty position yet. And so the postdoc is sort of an in-between where you develop your own project, a, new, a whole new project usually, where you, um, you develop a whole new project and you learn an, an more skills. You, you develop a whole nother set of skills usually. And then you take those with you when you go to start a faculty position. 
Some people will skip their postdoc, and in some fields, it's more common to skip that postdoc, like in engineering. Sometimes they'll just go straight from the PhD into a faculty position. But in my field, it's very common to do a postdoc, and it's usually like five to six years um, or three to five years, depending on the field you're in. So, so anyway, so after my PhD, I knew that I probably wanted to become faculty, and so I went up to the University of Washington to do a postdoc. And both my PhD advisor and my postdoc advisor were also really strong mentors for me. And again, they were, they were both happy with their careers. Um, they promoted a, a, a good um, environment of people in the lab in different ways. And, um, and they both did really good science. And so that's when I started to really appreciate good science. My, my undergraduate advisor also did good science, but I wasn't, I wasn't aware of it back then. <laughs> but, but they did really good science and they, um, and they had other good science skills that I was starting to pay attention to and wanting to pick up, like giving good presentations and um, you know, being able to write a good scientific piece of work, a good scientific article. Um, and so I, I learned as much as I could from each of them and I've incorporated a lot of that into my work now. And, I, and each of the strong points of each of my mentors, I've tried to, you know, bring into my career now. <laughs> I'm pumped. It sounds like we'll have plenty of superpowers to talk about here too. And this is kind of superpower discovery, superpower like practice, it sounds like. Um, the Was there a point kind of along this journey where you really kind of, because I mean, you kind of outlined it very clearly, undergrad, PhD, postdoc, and that kind of, was there a point where you kind of really realized you could cross that threshold? Like when you started to become more, Oh, I'm not just doing monotonous work. I'm starting. This is how this connects, and this connects to the bigger picture. And where you start to really realize the power that you have as a scientist, and some of the like, was there a point where you were like, "Holy crap, this is awesome"? <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, it was. So there were there were a series of small steps that led me here, and I always like to share that it was not clear to me from the very beginning. Like a lot of people think, a lot of people think you should know right away. And you don't know right away. You often don't know until you're there or you don't know until you're almost there. And one of the things that um, helped me know, again, it was kind of a process of elimination. My senior year of undergrad, I was trying to decide between medical school and um, a PhD program. And I, this is how close I got. I had actually applied to both. I had taken the tests for both, which is an enormous amount of work. I'd been interviewing at both. Again, enormous amount of work. Also cost a lot of money. I had to take out a loan just to pay for all the tests and the interviews. Yeah. And, um, and, and, but I still couldn't decide. And then I was starting to get accepted into different programs and I couldn't figure out what to do. And um, the University of Iowa had a medical school and I had applied to that medical school and I got waitlisted wait at that medical school. And since it was right there, I thought, well, I'll, you know, I still can't decide what to do. So I'll go talk to them and ask about why I got waitlisted and you know, what I could do to strengthen my application for next year. So I went in and sat down with one of the administrators and he told me, your application is really good. It's, it's strong. You almost made it. There's one thing you could do that would really make it stronger and help you get into medical school next year. And that is go volunteer in a hospital. You don't have that on your, you don't have that in your experience at all. It's all research. And I walked out of the room and I was like, okay, that's pretty simple. I could go volunteer at a hospital. And then I was like, oh, I don't want to volunteer at a hospital. That does not sound appealing at all. <laughs> and then the light bulb finally went off. And I was like, oh, I need to go get a PhD. That's what I need to do. <laughs> I don't want to be a doctor. I don't need to go to medical school. <laughs> and then, then that's when I finally like 
figured it out. That that's what I wanted to do was go get a PhD. Um, but it took me that long. I mean, it was like, that was like, I don't know, April of my senior year of undergrad. And then two months later, I was moving up to Minnesota and starting my PhD. <laughs> yeah. And that you did cross that threshold and that understanding, it seems pretty quickly that you're like, oh yeah, boom. And you, it seems like you got into like a purposeful direction pretty quickly after that. Was that, is that true? How'd you? In that yeah, no, it was totally like that. I actually... Five or six months later, I was telling that my story to somebody. One of the things you can do is you can get an MD plus a PhD. And I was telling my story to somebody in my program who was doing the MD PhD thing. And he, he asked me, oh, well, you know, you could still go back and like you could join the MD PhD track and then you could still do the MD. You could still get a, go to medical school and also go get a PhD. And I was like, no, why would I do that? <laughs> I just completely turned around. I totally, I crashed the threshold. And I was at like a train and there was no going back. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the blinders went up and then I was just all PhD. And then anytime anybody mentioned medical school to me after that, I was like, no way, I would never do that. <laughs> so yeah, but it, I think it's important to, I, it's important for young people to know that you don't always know. And it's not always, you don't always, even after you start heading down a certain path, you still don't know if that's the right path sometimes. That was a case where I did know, but you don't always know. And it's okay if you don't know. I think an important thing to do is to try different things and, you know, see what's appealing to you and what's not appealing to you. And I never worked in the hospital because it wasn't appealing to me. I just hadn't realized that yet. <laughs> it took me a while to figure that out. But, um, but yeah, you have to think about, you know, what are the things that I've been doing that I enjoy? And then that will help you figure out what, what you want to do. 100%. I love that. So then as you've kind of been blazing along this trail, um, got this blinders on, um, have there been dips? There seems to always be dips in these things. You, got, you put the blinders on, you started, you went up to Minnesota, that kind of stuff. And you were kind of moving, maybe it was, maybe it's outside of your like educational, like the uh, PhD postdoc, and it's more into when you got into faculty stuff. But has there been caves or things like those, those darker times where it dipped a little bit, wasn't, didn't go perfect or it wasn't? Um, and then what did you learn from that experience as well? Yeah, I think for me, the hardest thing at each of the stages was the first year. I really had a hard transition. I didn't doubt that what I was doing was right, but it was really tough. The first year in Minnesota, my first year in Seattle, even my first year of college, but Minnesota and Seattle, especially because I was away from home and I was, you know, in Minnesota, it was like freezing cold. <laughs> and when I got up to Seattle, it was, you know, really far away. It was a whole flight away. Yeah. What? You're saying you're so great for going further. Yeah, it's it's as cold as they say. It's gorgeous there, but it's cold. And I was also living in a big city for the first time, which was really scary. And so I my first and it's, it takes a long time to make friends. I think I started feeling better once I got like once I got through that first set of seasons and made some friends, then I, everything got a lot easier. So each of I think those were always my hardest points. But then there were a couple of other hard points. There's a typical hard point during your PhD, which is around your fourth year. We call it your fourth year funk, which wow. is, um, that's actually a term that I took from someone else. But your fourth year funk is when you're, you're kind of, yeah, you're like in the trenches and you haven't quite gotten things to work yet. And you haven't quite gotten good results yet. And you don't know if you ever will. And you've been doing it for a long time and you feel like you should have by now. <laughs> and that's, it's, it's really tough to get through that period of time. And fortunately, um, someone told me right off the bat, you're going to have a hard time. This is going to happen to you. 
you're going to have a fourth year funk and this is what it's going to look like. And so when I got there, I knew what it would look, I knew where I was at and I knew I would get through it. So I had had some good advice going, going into that. So I made it through that. Um, and then another time that was really hard for me was my postdoc. I had a baby and my first baby, and it was very, it was very jarring. Like it just having a baby in general is really tough. I was the only person on my floor to have a baby. So I didn't get a whole lot of support from those people. I found other people that supported me. Um, and eventually there, I did find some people in, at my work that had babies that supported me too. But as a woman in my field, it's not, my field is not very many women. And so it's not, it's kind of hard to find other people that have been through that. And so that it was kind of a hard time. Um, at the time, I didn't, I didn't realize that that was what I was suffering from. I was suffering from being kind of a minority in my field. And I didn't realize that at the time. And then later I had another baby and it was like way easier. So I think part of it was just having, you know, having such a big change happen your first time around. Right. But, but that, that whole year was kind of really hard. I didn't feel like I was, I didn't know what to do or how to, how to, how to, how to work while I was taking care of this baby and all, you know, all that stuff. But I, I got through that. That's, that's, that's a rough time. So then would you, some of the support mechanisms or things that you found and, and blazed through and look at you, you're on the other side, props to you, crush that one. Um, what um, did you do within that year? Was it going out and finding those support mechanisms and trying to build a tribe around some of that stuff? Was it? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah. I, um, one of the things I did is in Seattle, I was in Seattle when this happened and in Seattle, they actually have these parent support groups that you can join. And so I joined a parent support group and a lot of people in Seattle are transplants from somewhere else, just like we were, we were from the Midwest. And so they don't have family. So your support group kind of becomes your family. And um, in our support group, it was all women um, who were working. So it was, you know, it was all dual career couples. So it was all women and men that were working and then they were, they were having a baby. And they, so they were all going through exactly what I was, where they were trying to figure out how to balance having a baby with the job and and there was a lot of just like really practical stuff that I learned, like hire a house cleaner and get babysitting. And, you know, like there's a whole bunch of stuff that just I just really hadn't thought to do that was really helpful. And then there was just there was a lot of general support, too. So, you know, like you can do this. It'll be OK. And um, we would cry on each other's shoulders and stuff. So that that was really helpful. And then another really helpful thing is that somebody in my lab had a baby about three months after I did. It was a man, but he was very supportive and helpful. And he, he and his wife both worked. So it was the same kind of situation where they were in a dual career relationship. And, um, and he and I eventually became really close because we were like not sleeping for six months, you know, and, and it was his second baby. So he had a lot of helpful practical tips too on how to, how to manage being at work and have a baby. And, and then we ended up being really good, really good friends and really, close collaborators for a long time. So we're actually still collaborating. And I think it was because we got through that really tough period of time together. And most of it is just sleep deprivation. So we would show up at work every morning, just like completely, you know, like dark circles under the eyes and oh, how bad was your night? Well, mine was worse, you know? <laughs> and he would, sometimes he would sneak off and find a place to take a nap. And then he'd come tell me about it. Like if you go down the hall to the right, there's an open room and you could totally just crash in the corner. <laughs> So yeah, it was, it was nice to have. So I guess, I guess it was all about finding support. That was, that was what got me through that year. <laughs> you have to find other people who have been through it. It's good to hear too, because when you think about, I mean, good to hear, but when you look at kind of the hero's journey, one of the biggest steps of the hero's journey is test enemies and allies, right? The allies. 
if you're going to have all these tests, have it allies and having these like these people and be able to have that group sounds like it's very powerful and it um, proves out. It sounds like in your story, having that person that's like, we're going to do this together, kind of giving each other a look like, yeah, I went to the ringer last night. So did I, right? But you're not alone. And so that's, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And I eventually, when I had my second baby, I think part of what made it a lot easier is that I could immediately find those people. So at that, you know, by then I knew all of my friends who had babies, you know, I, I had kind of already immersed myself in the mom world. And so I could, I could quickly like find all that support that I needed. But that first time around, I didn't, I didn't hang out with people who had babies. So it was, it was a bigger transition. <laughs> okay. so that is, I mean, I, I mean, I'm just I'm hearing a couple, but I want to make sure we use your words here, but some of the superpowers you found, and I want to make sure we kind of fork, fork a little bit here in the superpowers you learned from some of your journey, but then also some of the things about like in your research and stuff that cool things, cool powers, cool things that people might not know about or things that you've researched or could apply in the real world, different types of taking it out of the clouds and down to earth. Like, yeah, back core, bacterial form and communication. People are like, why? But bringing it down to earth. So I'd love to hear a little bit of what some powers you learned on your journey. Sound like maybe some from mentors, maybe some from caves, but then also a little bit about your research and some of those powers. Yeah, so definitely I think finding the support you need um, one of the things that I've learned is that you can, um, you can, you can make friends wherever you go, and those friends are very, very helpful to you in ways that you don't know. Um, I, I was just flashing back for a minute to all the friends that I made when I had that first baby. I was giving you one example, but there were actually lots of people that helped me, and um, it was just, you know, I, it, it, it really, it's kind of empowering to realize that you can um you can go find these people that you didn't even know exist existed and you can open up your world a little bit when you discover all these new people that that can you know they can help you and they can share a pair of part of their life that you didn't know about and and then you'll stay friends for a long time too so that's the other thing especially when you're going through something really stressful whenever you're going through something really stressful the friends you make during that stressful time are friends that you'll have forever mm-hmm. so that I think that's a super fat power that I made is I made some really strong, really great friends. Um, and I, I think another superpower is the, um, uh, I, I don't know how to put this, but I've, I've learned how to, um, I've, I've learned how to analyze science in a way that is super useful especially during the pandemic. And I, this is a superpower that I've just realized that I have this past year. And I think I'm not saying that this is unique to me. This is something that almost anybody with a PhD would would have probably, but but it's something that um, I'm realizing that I can help the rest of the population with like my family who who doesn't have a PhD. I can interpret science. I can look at the media and and the headlines that are in the media and I can tell if it's baloney or if it's real or if it's somewhere in between. And I can go find the original data and I can look at that and I can tell if that's real and if that's baloney or somewhere in between. And this was something that I always thought anybody could do, but I'm realizing now that it's it's a skill that I've really developed because I've been doing this for a long time. And I can do it quickly. That's another skill that I've developed. I think anybody can do it, but they can't do it as quickly as, as I can. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, yeah, dude, it's just some opinion article. What's the primary source? How big was the subject size? What was the... Like, come on, man, do we even know like what happened? It, it, like that is such a superpower. I love that. Being able to condense that down, make it simple and help people. Yeah. Understand. Yeah. And it's, it's been, um, 
it's been a superpower that has become, it's become really interesting to me understanding how I can share that superpower with other people because I think it's so important now and it's not something, I don't think you need to have a PhD to learn how to do this. I think it's something you just need to learn, learn how to do and then do. And then the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. And so I've, I've been trying to- Step it out. Is there any way that you could break it down? Like if you had to think about, if you were gonna teach like a four-year-old this skill, how would you, is there like five steps to it? Like read the article, search the paper, look at this piece of the paper, or is there a way that you could break it into steps? Yeah, I think I could try to break it into steps. So if you see something in, um, you know, say you see something in the New York Times and it's interesting to you or some similar type of article, I think the first thing to do is to pay attention to what the source is. So is this a journal? Is this, uh, is this original research? Is this an opinion? Is this actual journalism where it's, it's not an opinion, but it's not original either? And, um, or is it uh, a blog post? You know, like some, it's more than just an opinion. It's like somebody is trying to, you know, just convey their ideas, which sometimes blog posts are completely reliable, but sometimes they're not. So it's important to think about that. What, what type of article is it? And then, um, and then it's also important to think about how reliable is that source. So is, is it a um, good journal or is it a bad journal? Is it a, a blog post that's really reputable that a lot of people look at or is it a blog, you know, blog that nobody looks at? Is it something that's well known for having misinformation on it? You know, these things you can actually look up and figure out. So you have to first step back and just look at all of those things. And then the second thing to do is to look at the original data that, that whatever it is that they're talking about. So a lot of times um, an article, many times it's several things that they're talking about, but a lot of times it's just one piece of data that, that, you know, the New York Times will have an article, but the article is really about some original research that just got published. And so what the tricky part, I think, is trying to find that original research and then look at that. And a lot of people get intimidated by that whole process, but there's often a link. So you just look for that link that's in that article, and then you click on the link, and then you can go to the original research that they're talking about. And sometimes you can't access it. Sometimes there's a paywall. Right. But many times you can access it. A lot of times. So it's open source a lot. Yeah, it's often open source. Yeah. So don't, don't be intimidated by that. Just go to the link and look at that, that article. And in an, in an original article, so the original article is like scientists like me who have done a study and then they publish the study in a research journal. This is very different from the New York Times. This is a research journal. Oftentimes it's been peer reviewed by other scientists. And, um, and the, for, the layout of all of these articles is pretty similar. So there's always an abstract at the top, which is a general description of what the results were. And you don't have to be a, a PhD to understand that abstract. Sometimes you have to read it a few times. It depends on how badly written it is. But if, if you know anything, any basic science or even no science, you should be able to make your way through that abstract. And if you can't, it's on them, not on you. <laughs> they should write it in a way that's understandable. Um, but a lot of times, if you read that abstract, you can tell the very basic thing, which is, is that abstract saying the same thing that that New York Times article is saying? Okay, and so that's the big thing you want to know. Yeah, yeah, you want to know. Yeah, you do a compare contrast and you want to know if that abstract is actually supporting what the original, you know, the article that you were looking at, 
Or is it something completely different? And if it's something completely different, then you stop right there and you say, this is not reliable. <laughs> you can try to figure it out, but you don't have to. You can just say, this is not reliable. They're not saying anything that has anything to do with this original paper. And that happens a lot, actually. Um, if it's somewhat close, then you can kind of pick through it and see if the data is believable. You can go in and you can, you know, if depending on your level of comfort with this, but you can you can go through the paper and you can look at the actual data. You can look at the figures. You can you can read the conclusions. You can read the whole introduction. Um, but the abstract is something that you really should be able to read. So don't be afraid to go and look at that paper and read the abstract and see if it looks real. So that's what that's what I've gotten really good at, and that's what I'm trying to teach other people how to do. And I'm, I'm especially, I think that I'm especially keen to try to teach undergraduates to do this. I think this is something that an undergraduate biology major should be able to do. We teach them how to read papers. They should be able to find those papers. They should be able to at least read the abstract and interpret it. So um, I played around this spring with a class that it's a senior seminar class and I, I assigned them articles and had them track down the original papers and see how, to, how they did. And it was surprisingly hard for them actually. So. <laughs> I think like being able to do like something we talk about is skills up to knowledge. That's something that we're huge about and like applied knowledge is part of our purpose. And what you just described is the perfect way. Like you just gave us the skill and then you gave them a way to go attack. Like, how did you learn to walk? Fell on your ass over and over again. How do you learn how to dissect things, uh, research articles and things like that? Go try. So that's beautiful. I love how you took that from skill to applied skill and to teach, to teach because anyone could do that. If you're watching this podcast, you could go do what you just said. Go search the New York Times for something, an article that's interesting to you, and then go through this process. Find the source. Is it reliable? Is it a primary source? Read the get the get to the primary source and then compare. Right? Anyone can do that. Yeah. Yep. And I and I realized when I was um, having my undergraduates do this that it's also practice. So I think you need to do it over and over and over again. So um, that's something that I think we probably the higher level, you know, colleges will start trying to teach more because we've had so much misinformation. This, I think everybody can agree that this year has been completely crazy in terms of all the, all the headlines and everything we've been seeing. But I've, I've learned that that is my superpower is getting, getting, sifting through all of that and figuring out what's real and what's not real. Oh yeah. So now that we're coming up here a little bit on time, I, the last question I always love to ask people is kind of what is your higher plane? What is that current mission you're attacking? Uh, maybe it's something with the lab, maybe it's something more personal, um, but what is that? What is that light at the end of the tunnel you're chasing? So the light at the end of the tunnel that I'm chasing is I, I just talked a little bit about how I'd like to make science more accessible to everybody. And um, the, the light at the end of the tunnel is that. I really want to make science more accessible. I want it so that that people can um, access science and understand it, but I also want to make make it so that people, any any person from any background, feels like they can become a scientist. And I think that that's really important because then science doesn't be it's not so intimidating to you know all the different people that are out there. And so I've really worked on trying to um, increase efforts in our department to be more accessible for people and more accessible for students and. Um, trying to identify ways that, you know, certain challenges that are keeping people out of this career, identify ways that we can overcome those challenges so that we can have more people coming in. I have a lot of diversity. I'm very proud of all the diversity that's in my lab. And um, I've really tried to help promote that diversity. There's programs that we have. I'm at the University of Kansas. And um, one of the things I really like about the University of Kansas is that we foster a lot of really great inclusive programs, especially in research. 
and I've started to get involved in some of those programs. So it's it's been kind of a fun journey. I still really love my research, and I'm not going to move away from you know the the, the um, thrill of discovery and and what originally got me there. But um, as I move further into my career, I've also gotten really interested in making science more accessible to everyone. Hell yeah! What a noble <laughs> a noble trailblaze. That's a uh, piece that I uh, I very much emulate as well. Um, and wanting body, I mean, neuroscience to me, everyone has a brain. Everyone can be a neuroscientist. Like, come on, man. Uh, go test the if then. Like, it's the most basic hypothesis, and your brain can do it all day, right? It's what's always doing. So, um, I love that, and it's very noble. So, if someone is looking to reach out to you, someone has a question, if someone has something like that, how can they reach, uh, touch base with you or reach out to you um, to just talk a little bit more about this potentially, or if they're interested in science, getting involved in some way? They can email me. I'm on the University of Kansas website, Josephine Chandler. You can look me up. Um, University of Kansas Molecular Biosciences Department. Oh yeah, pretty easy. So send me an email, say that you saw this podcast and um, let me know what your questions are. Oh yeah, well, I appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your day. I know you're busy trying to take over the world and make more scientists out there. So <laughs> you uh, have a conversation with us on the student podcast. All right, yeah, it was great. I appreciate you asking me to be here. It was really fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for tuning in today for this round of the student podcast. We'll see you guys next week. Peace.